Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Andrew Russell. I've heard this before. It's called For Want of a Nail. Anyone heard that before? No? Okay. I didn't think you did. It's an old proverb that teaches how a seemingly small or unimportant act or omission can have grave and unforeseen consequences. And this is how it goes. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Make sense? So one small thing can change everything, in other words. That's the proverb. It's called for want of a nail. And so as we turn to Daniel chapter 5 in your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open up to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to read of a young Babylonian king named Belshazzar, who because of one seemingly small or to him unimportant omission, he lost the kingdom of Babylon to the Persians. So let's read Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. Are we there, church? Amen? All right, we're going to begin by reading verses 1 to 6. And notice it says, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels with which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. One against another. So Daniel recounts the events here that actually led to the ruin of the Babylonian Empire. That's what he's doing here. As he, he's recounting what took place in the temple, sorry, in the in the king's palace, particularly in the banquet hall of the palace. We learn from this passage that King Belshazzar was given over. He had a certain disposition to pride and pleasure. Okay, He had a certain disposition to pride and pleasure. He, he calls for a big banquet. 
And he calls for much wine. And who's there? Who's at the banquet? A thousand of his what? Lords. What's another word for lords? These were the noblemen of his empire. So he called for the thousand of the noblemen of his empire, his co-rulers, his princes and so forth in the kingdom to come. And who else was there? All his wives, plural. And concubines, plural. Busy boy. Busy boy. Sounds like he had a lot of wives and concubines. It says then, he called them for a great feast and much drinking. And the Bible is really describing here almost like a drunken orgy, if you like. Many men and many women And they're all drinking wine, the Bible tells us, in verse 4. Sorry, verse 3 and verse 4. His wives and his concubines drank in them. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. This was no political gathering. Amen? This was no general political gathering. No doubt there was music there. There was entertainment and laughter in the king's banquet house as they drank, men and women drank, and made merry. Let us consider the scene for a moment. There's a bit of context here that helps us to understand what Daniel is recounting here for the benefit of God's people. Uh, Belshazzar was around 30 years of age just a little bit over 30 years of age. He was the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. His mother was King Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. She was the queen mother. And um, King Nebuchadnezzar's successor was actually a king by the name of Nabonidus, or some say Nabonidus. And Nabonidus is the first and foremost ruler of Babylon. And the historical record tells us that Nabonidus spent most of his time, uh, particularly at this stage, in the, in the countries of Arabia. He, in other words, he was away a lost. He was dealing with issues over there, but he was often away. And he elected his son Belshazzar, who we're reading about here, as co-regent of the empire. What was a co-regent? It was someone that had equal rights to the throne, equal authority with the king. Belshazzar is actually intended to be uh, Nabonidus' successor. But as the kings of the ancient empires did, they often um, brought up their successor and began to share the throne with them before they actually left the throne themselves. And so Belshazzar is here um, in Babylon throwing this great drinking fest where he's inviting all his noblemen. Now, there's something very important we also need to understand about this context, which we'll find out later on in the passage. But later in this passage, Belshazzar actually loses the throne on this very day of the feast. He loses the throne on the very day of the feast, meaning that just outside the walls of Babylon are what? are his enemies. In other words, in other words, his enemies are attacking just outside 
the walls of Babylon because you don't lose the throne in a moment. Like you have to have some enemies, right, to take away the throne of you. And history tells us that they are the, the Medo-Persians. That's right, the Medo-Persians. In fact, Cyrus the Great, son of Darius the Mede, is actually leading the armies and camped outside of the city walls. So why would, why would King Belshazzar then be having a big drunken fest with all his noblemen and his wives and concubines? Why would he be doing that? He thinks he's, he's a conqueror, like nothing can touch him. He thinks nothing can touch me. Yep. Nothing can touch me. What would give him that illusion? The walls of Babylon. The walls of Babylon. He doesn't think that the enemies can penetrate and actually have victory, and so he has this great feast. What's the message he's sending? What's the message he's sending to his enemies? Yeah. You can't get me. You know, at some point, as well, we read here, as we look a little bit more closely, that under the influence of alcohol and being influenced by his own sense of pride and power, it says that Belshazzar commanded the golden cups from the Jerusalem temple to be brought into the banquet feast so that everyone, men and women, could drink out of them. We saw that in verse 4. Let's look at verse 4. Let's look at the message that's been sent to you in verse 4. It says, and we read here, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of stone, of wood and of stone. And so what's the message he's sending? Mockery because who are they praising in their drunken revelry? They're praising their idols, isn't that right? Their false gods, that's right. So they're saying our gods, our gods have gotten us this kingdom. Our gods have gotten us this kingdom. And they're saying as they then take hold of the golden cups from the temple, why would they take hold of the the golden cups from the temple of Jerusalem and drink thereof. What, what are they saying when they take the golden cups? That they above God? Yeah. You see, when a king did this, when a monarch did this, they were basically taking hold of the spoils of their victory. Have you heard that term before? In battle, when one king goes and fights against another king and he, and he conquers that kingdom, he usually, they usually ransack that kingdom, take whatever they like, all their gold, all their silver and all those things, and they bring it back home. And so what we find here is Belshazzar is commanding for the spoils of victory when they conquered and then they conquered Israel, and they then brought back those in Daniel chapter 1, it tells us King Nebuchadnezzar brought back the golden vessels from the temple of God. And this is the second mention of them here now in context of Belshazzar. They've taken, he's taken the spoils of victory and he's drinking out of these very cups. And they're saying, our gods have given us this 
kingdom, um, and we drink from the spoils of our enemies. Ever thought about that? We drink from the spoils of our enemies, which then would declare who is Belshazzar's enemy here? Not just the Persians out the front of the walls of the city. Who else? God. The God of Israel. I'm sure he didn't think about it that way. He just made a little decision to have a big party in his pride, but never realized the path that he was heading down. Now notice again that it's at this point that Daniel recounts that God brings these festivities to an abrupt halt. Let's read verse 5 and 6 again. Notice it says here in verse 5 and 6, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote uh, smote one against another. So God brings the festivities to an abrupt halt by a supernatural feat. Imagine if you were there in the banquet and you saw just a hand, all of a sudden, fingers, writing something on the wall. No arms, no body. This sounds almost unbelievable, right? Except you forget that God had performed many such supernatural feats in the past. Think of what he did with the children of uh, Israel in bringing them out of Egypt and what Pharaoh was subjected to. Plagues upon plagues. And God was able to engage in this way, and he's engaging this way with King Belshazzar. So much so that Belshazzar, even in a drunken state, as you said, the word used, freaked out. Okay? Freaked out. You know, if you, for anyone who's ever been drunk, and please don't go and get drunk, but usually when you drink, you get what's called Russian courage. How many have heard of that before? Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. That means you're not really afraid of anything. You kind of got this courage that you think you have because you're intoxicated. You're not in your right mind. A big guy comes up against you. You think you can take him, right? And so even though the king is in a drunken state, yet what he sees scares him so much that he is shaken by what he sees. That's what it means by his knees knocking together he's shaking completely unexpected completely unexpected and so one seemingly um, harmless decision of the king which is his right to mock his enemies now seems to call for God's immediate and supernatural intervention. God is able to intervene supernaturally. God governs the elements. He's able to intervene supernaturally. And here the Bible describes how God supernaturally intervened. You know, 
I have to, I have to say this. Because God is able to use the elements and whatever he pleases, he is able to use to humble people. And you've heard so much about COVID, I'm sure you don't want to hear any more about it, but I'm going to say something else about it. Who remembers Israel Folau, the footballer? What was he saying? With marriage laws, sorry, same-sex marriage laws being passed across the world at the same time, he said, beware of God's judgments. God will not look favorably upon what is being done here. And he was ridiculed for what he said. And soon after, what happened? Global pandemic. Global pandemic. Now, I'm not God. I'm not going to say this is exactly how it is. But we do know in the context of what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, the signs of the end, when the disciples were glorifying the temple in Jerusalem and saying, oh, look at the temple, Lord Jesus. He said to them, there shall not be one stone left upon another. He talked about judgment because of the unfaithfulness of Israel. And then he talked about the other signs, pestilences and earthquakes. And it's as if these things are allowed to come as God's judgments upon a world who rejects the knowledge of God. And rejects what is right in the sight of God. And this hand that is writing on the wall is representative of judgment. Notice here, let's go to Daniel 5 again and let's read from verse 7 12. Notice how uh, Daniel goes on to declare the manner by which he is called before the king. Okay? So he, re- he goes on and he gives an account here. Verse 7. Um, down to verse 12. You see, many people are arguing about COVID this and COVID that, and I just go, listen, guys, you know, think of what the world did prior to COVID coming. I mean, what's the real issue? If you want, if you want God's favor, if you want God to bring healing, what do you need to do? Call, God calls us to repentance. These are judgments mixed with mercy, with mercy. And not only to repentance, but to reformation. Repentance and reformation go hand in hand. Repentance and reformation go hand in hand. But while the world chooses to call evil good and good evil, well, well then we we force the hand of God. Do you ever think that we force the hand of God? Why do I say that? We force the hand of God. Because God chooses to act in mercy and His judgments are there to wake people up at times. Don't believe that? Read through the Scriptures. The Bible says in Proverbs that whomsoever the Lord loves, He corrects. The Bible says despise not the chastening of the Lord. For whomsoever the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Don't despise God because he moves, because we've placed him in a position where he has to move. 
And the only reason he moves is because he's trying to save people for eternity. He won't allow them to continue down a path of destruction any more than I would allow my children to continue down a path that would lead them to their peril. Amen? Amen. I would have to chasten them. That's what a good parent does. So that they can learn and they can come back. And they'll know it's out of love. They'll know it's out of love. So let's read from verse 7 to verse 12. Bible says, The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the what? Third ruler in the kingdom. So obviously the, what was written by this hand, he could not understand. It was written in a language he couldn't understand. And whoever could interpret it could become the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third? Who was first? King Nebuchadnezzar. His father. Yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar. How did we say it again? Nabonidus. Or Nabonidus. I get mixed up myself. All right? But his father, and he is second being co-regent, and here he's willing to allow anyone else to be the third rule in the kingdom. And so he goes on in verse 8, he says, Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. Verse 10, notice now. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man. Where? In thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. So the queen comes in. You know what we learned from this? Was Daniel there at the feast, yes or no? No. Was the queen there at the feast, yes or no? No. Now this was not, I need to point out, this was not um, Belshazzar's wife. Because his wives and concubines were where? They were already in the banquet feast. This queen is the wife of his father. And she comes in. This is the daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar, remember? And she comes in and she says, O king, listen, I've heard what's going on. There is a man called Daniel. Daniel, who showed your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, his dreams, understanding of his dreams, and he dispels doubts. And he dispels doubts. Call him and consult with him. You know, many scholars get confused of this because Nebuchadnezzar is called the father of Belshazzar. Okay. But you don't need to be confused because Nebuchadnezzar is actually his grandfather. 
It's the same way as Jesus was called the son of David, right? Jesus wasn't literally his son, right? He came many generations afterwards. But it's just a term that the Bible uses. You could say your forefather, if you like, Nebuchadnezzar. But the queen now comes and she speaks to the king and tells him to call upon Daniel because more than 50 years before, Daniel was able to interpret the king's dreams. Daniel was able to interpret the king's dreams. And Daniel, around this time, is around 80 years of age. And I thought about this. I thought, well, Daniel's kind of like an old man now, right? 80 years of age. And yet, he's the one that is being called to give wisdom to the king. You know, when we're in a church environment, let us remember the elders among us. Let us remember the wisdom and experience that they have that we may not have of ourselves. You know, we live in an age where the young people have no regard for those that are older. Isn't that true? Often. You know, maybe, look, sometimes my children do it with me. Dad, you don't know what's going on, right? Because <laughs> I may not know some latest trend or something like that. And they go, Dad, you don't know what's going on. Dad. It's like they make me feel like I'm so out of touch. But let us not lose sight of the wisdom that the elders in the church have and the experience that they have having gone through things long before any of us may have gone through it. And so I just love the fact that we can look to the elders in the church for their experience and the wisdom. And that way we can appreciate one another, young and old. And so we find here that the Queen commends Daniel to King Belshazzar. Now, as we read on, we find out that Belshazzar himself remembers that he has heard of Daniel in the past and is reminded of who he is. Let's read verse 13 and 14. Notice Daniel 5, verse 13 and 14. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry, he says, aren't you that Daniel that was brought as a slave from Jerusalem that my grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had taken captive and you were brought here? Are you that same Daniel? Verse, uh, verse 14, I have even heard of thee that the spirit of the gods is in thee and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. So he says, I have even heard of thee. You're that Daniel. I know who you are. Makes sense, doesn't it? His grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar. So we find here that he himself has heard, and so he continues now with the recommendation of the queen as well to hear Daniel. Now notice as Daniel relays what God has desired to reveal to the king through the handwriting on the wall. Okay? Daniel is given the opportunity. Let's, read, let's continue reading from verse 18. We're going to jump to verse 18. We won't read it all for time's sake, but you can read it all in your own time. O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. 
And he says, and for, verse 19, and for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would slew, and whom he would, whom, and whom he would, would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would put down. That's the bit of the King James reading there, okay? <laughs> Just saying, look, Nebuchadnezzar exercised such authority as to decide who he would keep alive, who he would slay, who he would set up and, and give power to, and who, who, he, uh, who might he pull down. Verse 20 says, But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Verse 21 says, And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was, the wild, was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God, what? Ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appoints over it whomsoever he will. So what is Daniel saying? Daniel is recounting King Nebuchadnezzar's what? Experience, isn't that right? His experience with God. Now, this makes more sense when you understand that the chapter beforehand, in chapter 4, we read Nebuchadnezzar's own personal testimony. In chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar is given his own personal testimony of his conversion. And how he first, he got the light of truth and then he rejected it. And then he had another dream and then he got the light of truth and then he rejected it, right? Received it, then he rejected it. And then the final time, he lost his mind, and I shared this with you previously, and he became like an animal sleeping out in the wild. His clothes soaked as he slept there, soaked in the dew on the grounds, and, and he lost his mind until... God gave him a moment when his mind came back to him and he began to consider all that he had heard from Daniel and how Daniel was the only one that could interpret his dreams and how Daniel had been introducing him to a God that sets up kings and kingdoms according to his will. He allows kingdoms and kings to rise and fall according to his will, largely based on whether they choose to have faith in God or not. Okay? And so chapter 5 makes a lot more sense now. Because in chapter 4 you've got Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony, but now you're in chapter 5 you've got King Belshazzar who has heard of the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's heard of Daniel. And he knows what his grandfather has testified of, but has he chosen to believe it, yes or no? No, he's chosen not to believe the witness of his grandfather, the testament of his grandfather. I mean, how many people are still filled with unbelief even though they've heard your testimony, your witness? How many times in church do we share what great things God has done and yet people's hearts are still filled with unbelief and doubting? What more must God do to engage a soul in faith and, and realize that he's a living God and that he engages in the affairs of men. And so it goes on. Look at verse 22. 
Notice what Daniel says to him. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knew what? All this. Daniel says, Belshazzar, you knew all of this, but you didn't humble your heart. You didn't humble your heart to accept. Instead, verse 23, but has lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords and wives and thy concubines have drunken wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. You've been careless, Belshazzar. You've been careless with the knowledge of God. You've been careless with the testimony that others have given. Careless. Careless will land you in a lot of trouble. We don't want to go down the road of carelessness when it comes to the knowledge of God. I recall this one story, I don't know if I've shared it here, but there was a man, I did a funeral for his father, he asked me, he was a Vietnamese man, sorry, Cambodian man, and he hadn't gone to church for years, right? And I was contacted by the church and said, look, we've been contacted by this gentleman, would you do the funeral, would you be willing to do a funeral? He hasn't come to church for you know, a good few years now and his father has passed away, would you do the funeral for him? And I said, sure, you know, yeah, I'll do the funeral, absolutely. And they said, well, he's a member of the church and we've, we've called to him and we've told him, come to church. And we've called him many times and entreated him, but he's never come back to church. And he, and I, he just lives out there just doing his own thing. And so anyway, I met him and I did the funeral. It was, uh, it was kind of like a three-part funeral in a way. <laughs> I did a service on the, the night before and then we did a service in the church the next day and then we had another service by the burial site as well. And I always ask the Lord to give me a message. You know, I always say, Lord, you know, what can I share with a family that would bring comfort and hope? And also, Lord, I just want, to he- I want them to hear you speak. You know? And so I, God gave me a message. And, and that night when I shared the message, I could tell that this message was for this man. You know? And he was under conviction, I could tell. And, and then the next day as well in the church... I shared another message and I I sensed that God was really speaking to this man's heart. You know, when you get used to identifying the operation of the Holy Spirit, you are able to discern how the Holy Spirit is moving and how he's speaking to souls. But that comes as you cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And then at the burial site, I could see him listening intently to the words, you know, at a funeral, often people are grieving. Many of them are not really listening. But this man was listening intently through all three services. And the following Sabbath, he was back at church. No, sorry, no. He wasn't back at church. The following Sabbath, I thought he might return to church if the Lord was really speaking to him, but I didn't see him. And a month passed, and then he turned up at church. And I said, Brother Kung. I said, 
oh, so nice to see you here. And he had his arm in a cast and a sling. And I said, what happened? What happened to you, brother? And he said to me, the Lord was speaking to me. He says, I tell you, ever since the funeral, God has been speaking to me and calling me, but I didn't listen. I've been working on Sabbaths and do all of that stuff, and I just go and I've just been continuing to do my own thing. And he said, and I almost lost my arm in one of the machines. And he said, God got my attention. I've come back to church. Not that God desires that. Not that God desires that. But if he has to take your arm so that you can end up in the everlasting kingdom, you'll have both arms again, right? Then he'll do what, it, what he needs to do. God will do what he needs to do in order to wake us up and ensure in the kingdom. Now that might be a difficult pill for some to swallow. But the Bible says, despise not the chasing of the Lord. I remember another couple... I was at college, I was studying for the ministry, and uh, there was a lady there that was studying theology. She really wanted to study theology, and she wanted to be proficient in sharing the Word of God, and know about preaching and teaching, all those kinds of things. And at the same time, she was working, and she worked, she was an international student. You know what that means if you're an international student? That means you got it very, very difficult, right? You don't get any government funding, any government support, And so she was working like three jobs to pay her fees and pay for her livelihood. She had a family. She had a husband and a daughter. The husband, he was working one job just casually, a bit of casual work. So she was really carrying the home. And and she was a very God-fearing woman. And she would come home and she'd see her husband sitting there. and, And, you know, he'd never help out with the meals He'd never make anything. He'd just sit in front of the TV, watch all his shows. And she'd, she'd, say, you know, she'd say to me that it grieves her to see some of the shows that he's watching on TV. She really wouldn't, doesn't want that in the home. She doesn't want her daughter being exposed to it and that kind of thing, right? And, uh, but he does. And when she raises it up, he just tells her to keep quiet. And, and a lot of the time, he just locks himself in his room. So she does all his cooking, all the cleaning in the home and all that. Until one day... Guess what happened? She decided enough was enough and she left him. Now their house was directly opposite my home where I was staying and I heard about it so I went to visit and I found him sitting on the couch with his head in his hands like this. And I got talking to him and I said, brother, you know what? Your wife is doing so much. She's doing a good thing. She was, you know, she, she's passion, passionate about the ministry. She's working like three jobs and she's studying full time. She cooks, she cleans. I said, now you've lost your wife and your daughter. I said, you don't even, you don't even go to church. The church was literally across the road from their home. Literally, walk across the road, you're at the church. I said, brother, if the Lord has to take your wife away from you, your family away from you to see in the kingdom, he will. Next Sabbath, he was in church. And he took up his journey with the Lord. See, he was as a Seventh-day Adventist that knew a lot but never lived up to the light that he had. He was like Belshazzar who had the knowledge, 
there of this God that had worked and done these incredible things in the life of his grandfather. But you know what? He didn't apply it in his own life. There are many in the church like that. And so he thought about it all, gave his heart back to the Lord, started walking with God. And after a few months, they were reconciled and were back together again. And he wasn't the same man. He wasn't the same man. But that's the truth of how the Lord has to work sometimes to wake us up so that we can be honest and we can make a decision where our life is secured in Christ, where our life is secured with God. And so Daniel goes on, and notice as he reads here in verse 24, it says, Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. Verse 25, And this is the writings that was written. Many, many tekel upharsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Daniel is telling the king, Many, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found what? Wanting. God has weighed you and found you wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Verse 29. Notice, then commanded Belshazzar that they, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, what? Slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old, or 62 years old. And so we find out that the kingdom was taken. Babylon had enough chances, in other words. Praise the Lord, Nebuchadnezzar had responded. Even Nebuchadnezzar's daughter responded. His daughter wasn't even found in that banquet feast. But here now was a king that had gone one step too far. He had the knowledge of God, but he what? He rejected it. He rejected it. What was Belshazzar's mistake? What was Belshazzar's mistake? He made a seemingly small or unimportant to him omission in his decision. He chose to omit the knowledge of God that had come through his grandfather and his mother. And now it was to cost him dearly. See, there's two types of sins. There's the sin of commission and there's the sin of omission. Have you heard of that before? There's the sin of commission, and then there's the sin of omission. The sin of commission is where one directly acts upon the knowledge of evil. That is, you know what's wrong, right? And you still do it. You directly act upon that knowledge. But then there's the sin of omission. That's where you directly ignore or reject the knowledge of what is right. You ignore it. In other words, I know what's good, but you know what? I don't think about it. <laughs> you know? I'm not really thinking about it. There are things that I think on, and those are the things that I do. Right? But omission is when you omit certain things. The sin of omission is when you ignore what is right. 
People, in other words, will not only lose eternity for what they do, they will also lose eternity for what they, what they don't do. What they don't do. If you neglect the orphans, if you neglect the sick, if you neglect the suffering in this world, it's almost as if you're the cause of them suffering because you ignore them. You ignore what God is calling you to do. And as a church, God calls us to minister as Christ ministered. Amen? Christ calls us to minister as he ministered. You see, and so you've got a ruler here who through the sin of omission is leading a whole kingdom astray because the result is suffering within the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, when he received Christ, right, remember I shared this, in the fire, in the fiery furnace, he saw one like unto the Son of God. Remember Daniel's friends were being persecuted and there appeared the image of a fourth person who Nebuchadnezzar described like the image of the Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar had come to the knowledge of Christ. It was given to him. And he eventually acted upon that knowledge and he found mercy before God. And the kingdom became a blessed kingdom. Daniel was already the third ruler in the kingdom. But since Nebuchadnezzar's rule, we find Daniel no longer in that position because there are other kings on the throne, and particularly Belshazzar here. And now Belshazzar's looking to promote Daniel who had already filled that position once before. See that? Already filled that position, filled that position once before. And so the kingdom under Belshazzar's rule is suffering. That's the reality. The kingdom under Belshazzar's rule is suffering and God has to act. God has to act because God hates suffering. And sin brings suffering, amen? And that's why... God not only was commended Christ to King Nebuchadnezzar, but he commended Christ also to Nebuchadnezzar's son, through his daughter, of course, and then also to his grandson. But what we find here is Belshazzar rejecting the knowledge of Christ and his salvation. History tells us that Cyrus, son of Darius the Mede, marched his army towards the ancient capital city to complete his conquest. The walls of Babylon were believed to be impregnable by most as the city was surrounded by water from the Euphrates River. Okay, so not only were the walls very thick, but the Euphrates ran through the city and that water was used to create an enormously large moat around the city that also aided protection from enemies. I'm reading you a historical statement here. The Persian army came up with a clever plan to divert the river further upstream, dropping the water level down to a more manageable depth. According to, legend, the city's, according to legend, the city's inhabitants were so distracted by a religious feast that the Persian soldiers were able to wade the river completely unnoticed. They apparently tunneled underneath the walls and took the city without a fight." See, the thing is that Belshazzar knew, but he didn't follow through. Amen? Belshazzar knew, but he didn't follow through. And Christ weighs in the balances every choice that is made. 
with careful consideration for our Heavenly Father or without careful consideration for our Heavenly Father. Christ weighs every decision. God commends us and recommends to us that we weigh those decisions in the light of God's love, in the light of God's salvation. We weigh those decisions accordingly and we make the decisions that are pleasing in his sight. Make sense? The Bible says judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of Christ? God will weigh every decision, whether for him or against him. And I like the fact that he weighs them both. But may we not be found wanting as Belshazzar was found wanting. Let us rather be according, be found according to that wonderful psalm. Psalm 23. Who's, who knows Psalm 23? Come on, some of you can recite it. What's it say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down beside green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. Let us not want in this world. Let us put God first. Let us weigh our decisions accordingly. And so we will live the blessed and fruitful life that God has given us to live and be assured that we will inherit eternity with our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through your word today you've appealed to us. You've caused us to consider the choices we make, to weigh them more carefully. Lord, we find here an example of one who knew but didn't follow through with the knowledge that was given him. May we not be found wanting, Lord. May we, found, may we be found faithful, is our prayer. And we thank you, Father, as you work in our lives to make this a reality. As you help us to do what is impossible for us to do of ourselves. But as you help us, Lord, to walk in the footsteps of your Son. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by the Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church.
Neville Peter will now sing The Judgment Has Set. The judgment is set The books have been opened How shall you stand In that great day When every word Thought and action God the righteous judge For him. 
sins be washed away. Do you know where you stand? Do you know where you stand? How will you stand on that day? Have you ever thought about it, my friend? Have you ever thought about it, my friend? Oh, think about it now. Now is the acceptable time. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. Do you know where will you be on that day? I'm looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 This verse that we just read not only speaks of Christ's second coming, but it also tells us who Jesus is. An appreciation of who Jesus is is to enjoy Him as a special friend. Many descriptions of who Christ is are found among the scriptures that speak about his second coming. So, do not miss the truth that Jesus is our great God and Saviour, Titus 2.13. Could he be God if he were not in every way great? Could he be our Saviour if he was not in every way divine? Will you spend time with our great God and Saviour today? This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.